Welcome to Rings and Realms. This is episode one, and we've now all finally gotten to see episodes one and two of the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. There is so much to talk about. Let's get to it. So I want to go through some of the major ideas, some of, some of the big things that we saw happen in episodes one and two. But instead of just reviewing character by character or kind of going through the episodes and, and, and recapping what happened, I want to think about some of the themes. Because I found a lot of the, the, the visual and conceptual themes that they developed in these episodes really, really striking. And I'd like to bring those out a little bit. The first thing, of course, that we see established at the very beginning of the first episode, the sequence with Galadriel as a child in Valinor, is the issue of light and darkness that gets emphasized a great deal in her conversation with her older brother Finrod, right? And there we get established some of the basic terms which I think are going to be really important. They're clearly really important for all of episode one, but I think they're going to be important throughout season one and very likely for the entire show. And that is sort of two separate things. One, there's the difference between light and darkness, right? And that was demonstrated in Galadriel's little boat, right? The ship that sails and looks, it, it does not sink, right? Because it looks up at the light, whereas a stone sinks because it's looking down at the darkness. This is Finrod's explanation, right? So on the one hand, you have the opposition of light and darkness, which is correlated with up and down. Right? And notice also that it has to do with the choices and the fates of individual people. Are you looking up or are you looking down? Right? Are you going to be like the ship and sail or are you going to be like the rock and sink down into the water? Right? And a lot of that is about, clearly it's being mapped onto the choice between light and darkness. But Galadriel, child Galadriel that is, brings up a second issue. Not just the question of the difference between light and darkness and the different effects of light and darkness, but of light and light, of discerning between true light that will guide you upwards, right, where you're supposed to be and to get to where you're supposed to go, and false lights that might be a deception, a reflection, a reflected light, which is only reflected from the deep, right, which is in fact the darkness with a veneer of light over it, which can sometimes, as Chad Goadriel says, look like the light, right? And that, I think, is really establishing a theme which I expect to be a dominant theme in this series. Um, and we'll see, we can see several ways in which this plays out over these first two episodes. Of course, one of the primary things that we see right away is Sauron. Sauron, obviously, is the primary bad guy, right? And he is sort of the center of darkness. Um, fans of The Lord of the Rings will remember the association between Sauron and the shadow, right? Sometimes even the shadow is alluded to as a way to just to, 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 to talk about Sauron instead of naming him, right? Um, so he's associated with darkness and shadow from the beginning. And the idea of this creeping darkness, which is so beautifully illustrated in the darkening of Valinor, right? When the trees are darkened and we see the darkness moving up the veins of the trees, right? And the light slowly dying. This is the effect that the darkness, which again, notice, is coming from below, right? Has in the, and the light up above is, is fading out. Such a beautiful and important image uh, there. And then notice, of course, the shadow of Morgoth looming above the trees in the sky. 
Sauron himself is looming above the storyline of this episode in a very similar kind of way, right? And of course, with Sauron, we see darkness and light. They lean into that in certain ways, especially with the orcs, right? The only servants of Sauron that we see that we know of in these first two episodes are the orcs. And in the, uh, in the Southlands uh, plot lines, right, in the first two episodes, that's where we begin to see the actual incursion of Sauron and the orcs. Now, fans of the Lord of the Rings immediately recognize from the map that where that plot line is taken care of, Bronwyn's village, uh, where Arondir is stationed and everything, that whole plot line is happening in Mordor itself. So fans of the Lord of the Rings know exactly where this is going. This is going to be Sauron's stronghold. And of course, um, if you know the history of the Second Age, as Tolkien described it, you know that the rise to power of Sauron and the establishment of his stronghold at Mordor is one of the big things that happens during the Second Age. So um, that's, and I talked about that in the last episode, this is one of the things I expect to be a major thing happening uh, here in season one. Now notice how they played it in episode one and two with the tunneling of the orcs. Because of course this is a very important point, that orcs are sensitive to sunlight. They can't bear being out in the sunlight. And there again you can see the way that they're playing on this darkness and light imagery, right? Sauron and the servants of Sauron are so thoroughly steeped in the darkness that they can't come out into the light. So we see them burrowing beneath the ground. We only ever see them by torchlight until that moment, right, when the orc emerges in Bronwyn's house uh, uh, for that, I found actually kind of terrifying fight uh, between Bronwyn and Theo and the orc. Um, and it's sort of in the light, right, but it's still, it's still indoors, right? It's still under shelter. Um, but that the shadow rising from beneath the ground, right, and once again, darkness coming from below while light is above. Um, once again, we see that theme being played out there in the Southland. So I think there's a great deal more to come. Also notice, by the way, Theo's sword, which he keeps under the floorboards, just like the orcs come from under the floorboards. Again, that darkness from down below, like Finrod's words about the darkness and the rock, right? You know, sort of drawing things downwards. But of course, as I was saying before, Galadriel's, child Galadriel's emphasis on the two different lights, right? The true light and the false light, essentially. The false, you know, the, the reflection of the light, which is a reflection of the actual light, right? But which can itself be deceiving or misleading. This is going to be a major thing. What is actually happening? Who is going to be able to, to perceive what's really going on? With Gilgalad the High King, we see this as a significant issue here in this first, uh, in this first couple episodes. In particular, I think of the scene when Gilgalad picks up the leaf that falls. This right after uh, the Galadriel has gone away, right? Gilgalad picks up the leaf, which is, you know, beautiful and the, that nice bright yellow color, right, of the, of the leaves. And then he turns it over and you see the veins of darkness coming up. It's a, it's a direct parallel to the way that the darkness crept up the trunks of the trees, right? So we've got a little miniature darkening of Valinor happening on the backside of that leaf, right? So you can see the darkness again infiltrating and infecting the the bright color and the beautiful light of these leaves, right? And this, of course, seems to be a metaphor for what's happening in Middle-earth right now, just as the orcs are creeping up underneath the ground and coming up in people's kitchens uh, down uh, in the Southlands, we see the darkness coming. And there's a question with Gilgalad. What's he doing, right? Is he being vigilant? He's declaring peace. He's calling the war over. 
his, he is stating that light is, light is ruling. The darkness is gone, right? And yet in his conversation with Elrond, we can see he has doubts. He has uncertainties. He thinks that the shadow might actually be there. What's his plan? What's going on? What is Gilgalad discerning? What light is he following? Is he following the true light or is he following the reflection? Is he deceived or is he, does he have a bigger plan? There's a lot of wait and seeing, I think, that we have to do with Gilgalad. Um, but I'm really interested to see where that comes in. Now, another place where we see this light and darkness theme is with the Harfoots. Now, the Harfoots, a lot of the time, are really well lit. They are a bright cheerful, happy, light-filled. I think of their lanterns, right? Their, their, their lanterns with all their fireflies. One of the things that I noticed, of course, notice their fireflies don't blink, right? Real fireflies that we're used to in our world, right? Uh, blink on and off. Their fireflies were a steady source of light. And I thought that was really interesting because, of course, it creates these, these lanterns full of, of, of their fireflies, which don't flicker uh, and change, which are a steady, solid light. And that felt to me, again, like a kind of metaphor uh, for the Harfoots as a whole. They were very, they were very bright, uh, uh, bright, loving, shining, happy people uh, in, this, in this world. But of course, then we get the light and darkness coming in in Nori's nocturnal adventure, right? When by night she finds the meteor site um, where the, the crater is and the burning flame, the darkness of that scene lit only by the fire um, and the way that the fire, you know, leaps up and dies down. Um, there's a lot of alternating of light and darkness and a lot of fear and uncertainty. Fire itself, I think, is going to play a really interesting role. There are several ways in which we can see fire coming into the light and dark thing. Think about, for instance, Theo's sword, the black sword that he takes from under the floorboards, right? When that begins to form in that really creepy moment when the blood is drawn up against gravity, right? Sucked up out of his hand uh, towards the sword and the hilt of the sword sort of drinks in his blood and then flares to life and begins to form the blade, right? You see the shadow coalescing into the blade. Um, so again, you have this, the darkness being made tangible there in that sword, but at the same time, there's light, there's fire, right? Now, that doesn't make it less dark. Like that's a, The sword is clearly a really, really dark thing. Um, and especially, as I say, once again, we see it coming from underneath. It came from, it came from underneath the, the floorboards there, right? Just like the orcs do. But once again, with the stranger, we see this light and we see this fire in the darkness and it looks pretty scary. And so the question, like Child Goadriel's question, what kind of light is this, right? Uh, who is this, this, this guy has fallen from the sky. People don't fall from the sky, as Poppy says, right? Um, who is he? What is he? It's the, one of the biggest obvious questions that's being given to us here, uh, in these first couple episodes. And, and, and we've been given this thematic framework in which to understand this. What kind of light is he? Is he going to be a light that's going to help people look upwards, right? Is he going to help Nori and the Harfoots sail? right on to the place where they're, where they're supposed to be to do what they're supposed to do? Or is he going to be uh, leading them downwards, right? Is he a false light? Only one of those reflections that's going to, uh, to distract and deceive and ultimately uh, drag them down. That's the big question. Personally, I think, I think he's a true light. I don't think he is. Many people are wondering if perhaps he's Sauron. I don't think he's Sauron. Um, I think that he is one of the wizard's 
I'll talk about him more in the later segment. But I think that um, the way that the light and dark is handled, notice how even when in the morning sunlight, Nori comes back to him again, and he sees her for the first time, and he's obviously sort of startled and himself uncertain, right? Um, and he looms over her, and the trees start bending in, and the wind uh, whips around, and the darkness comes in. The sun itself is darkened. Right. And so that is another really tense moment, which again suggests that maybe there's something dark and scary about him. Right. The light and darkness thing. But Nori is consistent all the way through. Right. Nori's the, the, the sort of the, the confidence of Nori's courage all the way through from when she goes and discovers him in the crater through her not running away from him, even when he's being really scary. Um, all of that stuff, I think, is really, really interesting and really powerful. A few other places where we see this theme in Casa Doom, when the mirrors are shining the light down. I'm not going to talk about Casa Doom a great deal with this theme, but we can see how that's coming in. Notice you have the light uh, being reflected down, which just evokes all of those terms that Galadriel was using at the very beginning, right? And they're, they're, they're growing their crops. Notice also the opening of the cask at the end of episode two and the light that is inside. What have they found? What is it that is glowing? Um, the light in the darkness inside their caverns. We don't know what it is, right? But of course, the light and darkness theme really comes together on the ship to Valinor with Galadriel, right? And when the curtain opens, we've got, you know, we've got the darkness around and the curtain opens and the glowing light, which Elrond had emphasized before, is supposed to be, uh, by reputation, um, one of the most ecstatic experiences you can have to pass into that light. And the light glows and they're singing and it's beautiful and she turns away from the light, right? This, of course, was the setup from her conversation with Finrod at the beginning, right? And it is not, I think, the implication I don't believe is that the light of Valinor is a false light, right? Although, remember, we saw the light of Valinor die, and it invites the question, what is the light that we're seeing on the other side of the curtain? Where does that come from? Um, because the light of the trees is gone. Galadriel remembers the light of the trees. But anyway, um, she turns away from that light, and instead she leaps out of the boat and into the sea. She chooses to remain in Middle-earth in a move which almost looks like she's choosing darkness instead of light. And that gets really dramatically emphasized when the curtain closes and the dark, and we see Galadriel floating in the sea by herself. And at first she's lit by the glow that she's still looking off in the direction um, of Valinor and the light that was. And then the curtain closes and darkness falls and the whole screen goes to grayscale. And there's Galadriel in the darkness in the sea. The question, is she going to sink like a rock or is she going to is she going to sail, right? And she turns and swims away like the ship, right? Like the ship sailing, hopefully, but still in the darkness. And of course, in episode two, we see her sinking like a stone drawn down into the depths of the sea. And that seems like this is Galadriel in a dark place, right? Looking like she may be overwhelmed by the darkness. It really places a huge emphasis on the choices of Galadriel, not only what she's doing, but why she's doing them. And I think that the way that this theme gets integrated makes this really powerful. In the sea itself, we can see the same thing, right? With the 
um, the, the shadows and the fog and seeing the, the worm and the ships and the rafts and things through the, all the misdirection that we get. Is it a ship or is it a monster or is it both, right? Uh, that we see all of this uncertainty. And I was especially struck by the sharp line between the light and the darkness of the storm as it comes in, that dark storm which is in which Goadriel ends up sinking down into the bottom before she's rescued by Halbrand. And of course, at the very end of the episode, we get Galadriel lying on her back, staring up at the, at, at the sun, right? And the shadow over her, which of course I believe to be the shadow of Elendil on the, sh- on the, on the, uh, on his, the decks of his ship, right? The shadow of Numenor lying over uh, Galadriel, which is a very tantalizing way to introduce the Numenorians, as I'm pretty sure we're being introduced to the Numenorians there at the end of episode two. This is one of the themes I'm going to be very excited to track, not only through this first season, but through, I believe, this whole show. This seems to be one of the fundamental pieces of vocabulary that this show is giving us to try to understand what's going on here. Now, another theme which really looms over these first two episodes is the idea of death and mortality and change associated with it. Once again, we get introduced to this theme in the child Galadriel sequence at the very beginning. When she is speaking of the sort of the state of innocence in which the elves lived, in which they didn't even have a word for death. And you can see this especially in the conversation between Finrod and Galadriel there at the start when he mentions that he might not always be there and she's genuinely confused. Why would he not always be there? What, how could that kind of change happen? It's obviously completely outside her worldview at that moment. And then of course, with the description of the war with Morgoth, and they learned many names for death. And we see that really, really evocative image of Goadriel putting the helmet on the huge pile of helmets um, and the great familiarity with death that they gain. I'm also really interested in the scene with the memorials of the elves, the carved the wooden carved memorials of the elves. On the one hand, that was a little surprising because elves don't normally, as Tolkien describes, elves don't normally make uh, uh, statues of other elves. However, this was sort of an interesting case because they were carved in living trees, right? And so we had this idea of these images, which were, those images were themselves alive, still, al- you know, they were still a living tree, right? Um, and also, which seemed to sort of suggest that there was some, uh, you know, are, is, is that an illusion to the continued life of the elves over in Valinor, the elves that have died? I'm not really sure. But nevertheless, um, there was a huge sense of loss throughout those first two episodes, with, again, Galadriel being really at the forefront of that, especially her mourning for her brother, Finrod. Now, it's not just, though, about death and personal loss. We also see change, change in the world around them, right? The way in which they interact with the world and, uh, and the, the, the mortality and change, not only of the world, but of the other peoples around them. And there are two places where we can see this difference, although the elves have become accustomed to death, they still are not used to things changing, and they still seem to have a little bit of a struggle understanding this. Of course, the most prominent and I found most moving example of this was in the conversation between Durin and Elrond, when Elrond is just in the middle of saying, I can't believe what you've done with this place in only 20 years. Has it only been 20 years? It's amazing, right? Um, Commenting on how short a period of time 
a mere 20 years is, and then Durin immediately flinging that back at him and pointing out that 20 years was to him a dwarf, a lifetime. He has lived a lifetime in those 20 years. And that sense of the passage of time, of loss, not only loss in the sense of losing those that have died, right, but loss in the sense of time passing, and Elrond is never going to get that time back with Durin. He has lost decades with his friend. Um, and has not been a part of his friend's life during this really important time when his friend got married and had children, right? And that time is never coming back to them again. So again, that difference between how elves look at the world and the way that they understand and interact with death and the way that we see this happening with other people. Now, this theme comes in again very prominently in the Southlands, right? And we can see even a greater disjunction between the elves of Arondir's company and the humans of, uh, of, of the Southlands, right? Because the elves are looking at the humans as this sort of vague continuity. They think of these people, these are the people who are the allies of Morgoth. These people were the enemy and therefore need watching. They need looking after and you can't trust them, right? Because they're still thinking of them like they're the same people, right? And yet, to the people, it's been dozens of generations. They don't even remember Morgoth and that entire time, right? We can see in the landscape the very fortresses that they built and presumably dwelt in and defended uh, under Morgoth, right, have crumbled and, you know, collapsed into the landscape and are barely even remembered by the people who still live there, right? So we see this enormous gap between this very present memory uh, to the elves and what is actually the distant past of untold generations previous to the humans, and which they, of course, understandably, find totally irrelevant to them. This is made very personal between Bronwyn and Arondir when he refers to her hometown, right, as the, the, that's a place that was really loyal to Morgoth. And she's like, I know those people, right? This is my hometown. Um, that lack of comprehension even, really, of how change has happened, that disjunction from time and from the change that it brings. I think this is, again, something that we see set up really prominently at the start and is going to be really interesting to track as we move forward. Now, another theme that I think is going to be really important throughout this season is the theme of healing. We, I was really, my attention was drawn to this first by the scene with Arondir and Bronwyn at the well. Bronwyn, of course, is a healer and asks Arondir if there are any healers among his folk. And he says, no, we don't really need them, right? Elves pretty much get better almost no matter what you do to them, which is true. Tolkien says that the old elves were extremely hard to kill and could endure things that humans would kill mortals easily. Um, so that's true enough. But then he adds, we do have artificers among us. Right, makers, apparently artists, he seems to be talking about. And what he describes that they do, he says that they, 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 they take hidden truths and they render them as things of beauty because beauty has great power to heal the soul. And I think that that line is going to be a very, very important line uh, in the context of this entire season, especially this link between not just beauty, like the beauty that you find in nature, right? But the beauty of things made. And this, of course, brings me to Celebrimbor and Celebrimbor's ambition, right? Feanor accomplished this great deal. Feanor was the greatest 
uh, artists and craftsmen ever in the history of the elves, right? Celebrimbor is the greatest living artist uh, and craftsman among the elves. And he's talking about what he's accomplished, and he wants to accomplish more. He talked about the elves bringing war to Middle-earth, and he wants to bring healing to Middle-earth through the making of beauty. We can see him picking up that theme very directly, and it's this desire to accomplish something good, to accomplish something for the, for, for the increase of beauty and the healing of the land and of its people that seems to be driving him. And of course, uh, those of us who are familiar with the story know that Celebrimbor's ambition is going to be ending in the rings of power. So watching that link, watching how beauty and healing gets folded into power, right, through the rings of power, I think is going to be really, really fascinating to watch. Now, there are a couple other minor places where we can see this sort of thing being brought in. Uh, the, the idea of healing, right, the image, the, the instance of healing with the dwarves, right? We see it in the Elrond and Durin relationship. This is about the mending of a relationship. Mending is the word that Disa uses. Can you find a way to mend this? She says between the two of them. Their friendship is wounded, right? Their friendship has been almost killed, uh, at least according to Durin, right? And it needs to be healed. They need to find healing together. And that's one of the primary things that I think we see happening in that scene. Of course, in a in a, in a in a more literal way, we get the apparently broken ankle, uh, right, of uh, Largo Brandyfoot uh, there in the Harfoot camp. And this is obviously going to be a major issue. They need to migrate soon, and he's going to get left behind if he can't travel with them and pull his own wagon, right? Um, so I believe that healing is going to be an issue, right? That's gonna, he needs healing. And they are clearly helpless to do anything about it. Um, so once again, in, in that in that subplot also, we see this question of of wounding and the need for healing, right, arise. But of course, the primary place that we see the need for healing and especially healing of the soul is in Galadriel. Galadriel is deeply wounded by what she has experienced in the first age. They have sort of in uh, sort of distilled into Galadriel the grief and the suffering that the elves have experienced in the first stage, made more poignant by the fact that she does remember the time of innocence, the time of beauty and Valinor before any of it began. She feels she can remember the light of the trees on her face, as she says in that beautiful line in episode one, right? She has that memory, and yet she's been traveling through the darkness since then. She needs healing. Now, the trip to Valinor would seem to be the solution. And of course, this is picking up on the very ending of the Lord of the Rings itself, right? At the end of the Lord of the Rings, Frodo is wounded. He's been deeply wounded physically. His hand is maimed. He has the, the wound in his shoulder from the Nazgul. He has the sting in the back of his neck from Shelob. Um, he's been physically wounded, and those wounds persist. But of course, he's been even more deeply wounded by that um, in his relationship with the ring and his experience with the ring. And he can't find healing in Middle-earth. It's only in Valinor. It's only by going through the curtain to the far green country under a swift sunrise that he can find healing. And in episode one of The Rings of Power, we see Elrond holding that out to Galadriel. She needs healing. He can see that, right? He's worried about her, and um, she should be able to find healing because in the undying lands, there is rest, there is healing, right? But Galadriel talks about bringing that evil, bringing that pain, 
with her into Valinor itself. And again, we, it's hard not to remember that image of the darkness creeping up the, uh, the trunks of the tree and the light itself being extinguished. And that becomes almost like a sort of metaphor for what Galadriel feels not only would happen to her, but what she could do to the undying realm if she were to bring that pain within her to the undying realm. I thought that was really, really compelling. Galadriel's need for healing. How is she going to find healing? Clearly a major question from the beginning of this show. Now, one of the lighter themes that we can see in these shows is friendship. I've been talking about light and darkness and death and wounding and everything like that, but friendship, I think, was also a fairly significant theme. You know, we see it in some small places, like the relationship between uh, Poppy and Nori among the Harfoots, which I found uh, to be very attractive. I'm really looking forward to seeing their relationship grow and continue. Of course, having a hobbit friendship like this uh, near the heart of the show um, is something that I was delighted to see. Of course, seeing Poppy and Nori as in some ways uh, corresponding in parallel to Sam and Frodo, right? So uh, I don't know if Poppy is going to end up being as awesome as Sam, but in any case, I was really interested to see that. But of course, there were also some really big places. Um, as I said, Poppy and Nori is kind of a small place in a way in the plot. At least it's not played a massive role so far, their friendship, I mean. But Elrond and Galadriel was a very prominent one, right? It's clear that Galadriel's friendship with Elrond is genuine, right? He, he seems really, really happy to find that she's here, right? He's not only excited to go see her because he has a, a significant role to play as Harold and um, as the sort of intermediary between her and Gilgalad, um, but he, I think, clearly does care for her. I, I, that, that first scene that they had together um, showed genuine affection on both sides. Um, my favorite tender moment between the two of them was when Galadriel notices that uh, Elrond wrote Gilgalad's speech, uh, when he's delivering his speech and that little smile that she has uh, really spoke to me of, the, of the, the affection between the two of them. And yet there's a real tension uh, in their friendship, right? Because of his role as Gilgalad's right-hand guy. Um, and not only that, but Elrond's diplomacy, right? He is a diplomat and prides himself as a diplomat. We see lots of careful, or we hear, I should say, lots of carefully rehearsed speeches from Elrond, even to Galadriel, and you'll remember she even calls him on it at one point, right? That he's just trying to butter her up like a courtier instead of speaking to her directly as a friend. So the tension that his, both his position uh, as a diplomat and his sort of diplomatic attitude, right, uh, plays, it, it's, uh, that is clearly fairly significant. That comes to much greater focus in his relationship with Durin, right? Once again, when we see Elrond interacting with Durin from the very first time he approaches the doors until we, until he meets Durin, right? Every time he opens his mouth, Elrond is uttering some flowery speech, right? Like a diplomat, like a politician. And Durin cuts through it immediately, right? Um, the crassness of Durin's words the anger and impatience of Durin's words um, really make Elrond's fancy speeches sound hollow, 
And it's not until he turns and expresses himself clearly and honestly as a friend uh, to Durin that things begin to shift and change and ultimately begin to move towards the mending of their friendship. But it's clear that that friendship matters. The diplomatic relationship between dwarves and elves, Celebrimbor calls, would, calls success in that the diplomatic feat of the age, right? It's a big deal. It's very important for the story that the elves and the, and the dwarves should work together, apparently, right? And yet, it's the personal friendship between Elrond and Durin that not only ends up meaning more in the course of the episode, but is the thing that is going to turn the diplomatic situation. All the diplomacy in the world didn't help, right? But their friendship did. That's what clearly really matters uh, in, this, in, in that part of the story. So I think that following this theme of friendship and watching the friendships as they develop, as we go through, I love the fact that friendship seems like it's going to be something that's going to be very important in this show. Now, a theme that they picked up on in the show, which is of deep importance in Tolkien's work, and which I was fascinated to hear them drawing explicit attention to, is the question of fate and chance. So Nori has that big speech. She's the one who really draws attention to this theme when she's talking to Poppy about finding the stranger, right? Poppy's given her a hard time saying, why does she always take this on herself? Why is she taking responsibility? And Nori says she feels like she was meant to find him. It was like it was meant to be. And this is a deep, deep, we, we, that there is, it's almost an echo of what Gandalf says to Frodo when he's describing Bilbo finding the ring. Um, when, at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, he's describing Bilbo finding the ring and he says, it's like Bilbo was meant to find the ring, right? And indeed, there's a whole Tolkien word that he brings up to describe this. He calls it a chance meeting. It's a hyphenated word. Uh, in Tolkien's vocabulary, chance meeting. It's a special, it's, it's, it's not just an adjective, chance applied to meeting. It's a special kind of meeting, a chance meeting. The apparently accidental encounter of two people, which turns out to be deeply influential to the fate of many, right? Two people who are brought together apparently by chance, and yet it's actually part of a deep and underlying purpose. We see this kind of chance and fate coming in throughout The Hobbit and again and again in The Lord of the Rings as well. And so I was delighted to find them raising this idea. Nori has this sense, right? She was meant to find it. He came to her, right? There's a reason why the two of them have encountered. It is, in the Tolkien terminology, a chance meeting between the stranger and Nori. She doesn't understand why. I don't understand why yet, right? What exactly is going to be accomplished by this connection that's established between the Harfoots and the stranger? But it's clear that that's going to be significant. Now, that kind of chance meeting, having been prepared for, for that idea by Nori, right, in her reflections on her finding of the stranger, I was not surprised in the least bit uh, for Galadriel to end up washing up on this raft in the middle of the sea, right? What I mean is, right, she's, she's, there she is floating in the middle of the ocean by herself and doing pretty much the only thing you can do in that situation, which is start swimming, right? So she's vaguely swimming back towards Middle Earth. And yet in the middle of the ocean, she happens across these people on this raft, right? A strange coincidence, a strange chance, if chance you call it. So in the context 
of Nori's discussion about the intention, the, the, the meaning between that encounter between her and the stranger. We then get Galadriel encountering these people on the raft. And of course, in the end, it comes down to her and Halbrand, right? This chance meeting between Galadriel and Halbrand. What is going to come of it? Halbrand, of course, himself draws attention to it. Halbrand alludes to fate twice during his conversations with Galadriel on the raft. Our attention is being really drawn to this idea that there is some destiny at work in the meeting of Galadriel and Halbrand. What is going to be accomplished by this? What shall this chance meeting result in? Tolkien talks about the chance meeting between Gandalf and Thorin Oakenshield, which led eventually to the death of Smaug, the liberation of Erebor, and the reestablishment of the Kingdom of the Dwarves, just because Gandalf and Thorin happened to run into each other at the pub one day at the Prancing Pony, right? What is going to result from Galadriel's chance meeting with Halbrand on the raft? Um, I've heard some people saying, well, gosh, that seems awfully convenient that she just happens to run into these people out in the middle of the open sea. Yes, it is very convenient, isn't it? A strange chance, if chance you call it, and that is exactly the way that this theme emerges in Tolkien again and again, and I think we can see that at play in the show, too. Hello. I'm so excited to do this. We finally get to talk about the content that we saw in episodes one and two. Um, so in this section, I'm going to talk a bit about some of the adaptation choices that they made and some of the production ideas um, and just some personal reactions as well of things that I thought about episodes one and two. Um, the main thing I want to say from the start is just how much fun I had. So I am really looking forward to, to diving into some of the detail here. Um, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing personal review. Um, also because we've only seen two episodes and there's going to be 50 hours of content. So I don't feel like I need to really do a review. This is much more analysis of, oh, wasn't this an interesting decision? Um, so the things I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of an overview of like a couple things that I loved and a couple things I'm concerned about, but then I'll do a deep dive into the Galadriel and the ship episode, um, moment from episode one and cause of doom, um, and the conversation between Elrond and Durin for episode two. So I'll try to just pick one thing from each episode to do a little bit of a deep dive while giving you some, um, tools and context, uh, for adaptation considerations as well. So things that I love, things that I'm concerned about, there's not a massive list. It, I'm just kind of enjoying the ride right now. But one of the things I really loved was the slow reveal of the monster. It's kind of like a well-known Hollywood thing to not show your monster all at once, because if you show your monster, it's no longer scary, right? If you don't see it, it's scarier. So not seeing the monster, you know, think Blair Witch or that creature from the village and things like that. If you don't see it, it's terrifying. So I feel like they were really good at building up that tension of the orcs with rings of power. We saw claw marks. We saw claws that looked like talons. They were so long and aged. And then we saw that like slimy tongue that looked like it had hair on it. And the shots that we had of them were us hiding behind doors, right? They gave us the perspective of the characters that were terrified and were hiding behind doors or peeking out of curtains. So there's very much this feeling like they were coming to get me and I was only getting snippets of the imagery. So all of that just added to that tension of, oh my gosh, this is really terrifying. Um, and you could just kind of tell in the, the feelings and the reactions of the people that heard about the orcs as well. Um, you've seen them. Oh my God, they're real. Like you could see the real terror. It was making your blood cold to think about them coming into your home. It just felt different than kind of the disorganized and malicious, angry 
orcs that we've seen in other portrayals um, in the past. This one just felt really menacing um, and a bit more organized. Uh, it, it felt a little bit more sophisticated. So I thought the orcs were pulled off really well and the tension and the terror there was great. So loved the, the monster reveal and kind of the hiding of that. Um, loved the cinematography. I thought it was just visually stunning, really beautifully shot, um, great use of New Zealand and, you know, the landscapes that they have there. Such wonderful detail to costuming and lighting. Um, the music was really stunning. So like in terms of a whole big picture project, I just thought it was beautiful. And, and that's really a relief because it'd be so easy for them to just punch something out quickly, right? And put a little glitter on it and, and say, here you go, it's a beautiful thing, somebody's gonna watch it. You can tell a lot of care was put into this process and a lot of development, um, creativity, research, all of those things, just looking at you know the pin coming out of the armor. Somebody designed that armor and put a lot of thought into how it would come together and what it would mean when it was coming off and you know the influences behind it and what it would look like if it was worn for decades because they've been serving for so long and I just really enjoyed the the depth because it gave you that kind of gravitas that I think we all feel Tolkien works expect expect uh deserve so I really enjoyed that I mean in terms of concerns I don't really have a lot I'm I'm cautiously optimistic still. <laughs> um, I was a little concerned with some of the performances and story. Uh, I think there's some gaps in story and I think there's some gaps in acting, but it's also only two episodes. So I'm, I'm willing to just kind of say, I'm aware of that. I hope it improves. Um, there are just some elements of convenience that I thought were a little bit, um, eh, script concerning, you know, things like, um, um, blanking on his name, the elf, uh, that's, that's looking over the watchtower in the land of men. Um, he, you know, is, is getting the orders to leave and then that day terror comes in and, and just things like that. Like, well, isn't that convenient? You know, it, it just lines up. Um, and there were quite a few moments like that. Like this thing is happening and this opportunity arrives just at the exact precise moment. And there's ways you can do that in film without it seeming so convenient. It just felt a little bit rushed or, or something to me. So I'm still kind of figuring that part out. So I'm, I feel like I'm just reserving a little bit in terms of character and story. Um, but there are a lot of things I really like. So I want to get into some of the two um, deep dives. So the first one for episode one, I want to talk about Galadriel on the ship. Now we have speculated about this a fair bit um, in our conversations previously because we saw some shots in the trailers um, of Galadriel on the ship and what did it mean? And we thought it might be ceremonial and things like that. Well, now we know it absolutely was ceremonial. Um, it was a really beautiful moment um, visually. A little problematic story-wise, which I'm sure Corey's going to talk about, about, you know, being granted permission to go to the Grey Havens, and, and is that really something that he had the permission to do, and was that his right, and all these things. So I think there's a lot to be said um, in, in that respect, but I'll leave that to Corey. Um, in terms of storytelling visually, I thought that scene was really interesting. So firstly, we get this gorgeous ship, um, beautifully gold and shining and bright and warm wooden tones on a dark, cold um sea like almost a black sea cutting through the water so visually it's just very striking also the movement um we've talked a few times about movement for road movies being left to right and that shows progression it's just kind of like a natural thing that that happens with movement in films and the ship in this one is moving from the bottom right corner to the top left and i thought that was very cool because we hear that line echoed from the beginning where um her brother's saying why does a ship float and a rock sinks and then we see the ship going to the Grey Havens and it's opposite to what 
our, our mind's eye might think of as progression, right? Like moving forward would be left to right across the screen. And here she is doing the opposite of that. So we're kind of going the wrong way, right? Like you kind of get this feeling of like, oh, that's, that's not right. So it immediately gives you this little unsettled feeling like, oh, okay. Um, and then we have this beautiful moment on the ship where they're all positioned in a, a very uniform way with her at the front as the figurehead, you know, on the helm in their full regalia, armor and everything. And then we have people taking the armor off of them one by one, literally shedding their past life, taking off that helm and stepping into the next life. It did make me wonder about those people. Are they going with them to the Grey Havens? <laughs> I mean, the ones that look like nuns or, or something. Um, it obviously seemed like a very ceremonial role, but do they get to go too? Or do they have to return the ship in 24 hours? You know, I just had this like, I felt like I was at a rental car counter, like, are they just bringing it back? <laughs> um, so that was a little bit, hmm. But in terms of, of, of where we were and the, and the movements that would happen there. So taking off the armor, leaving that past life behind and stepping into the next life, that was a really beautiful visual moment of shedding that life and stepping ahead. And it ends with them just in this white, pure shift that does feel very, I'm crossing over the threshold. It does feel very ceremonial and transformative. They all start singing this song but Galadriel does not, you know? And then we hear this, why does the rock sink and the ship floats and the light reflected off the water? And you start to get this inkling that she's gonna make a different decision, isn't she? And then we have the intercut with the stranger falling from the sky. So we just start to see this fireball falling from the sky and it cuts between everybody looking up at this fireball and Galadriel looking down. She's the only one looking down. So she's automatically looking opposite to everyone else, doing the opposite to what is expected, right? And as the pace is building, that rock is falling, we see everyone looking cut, 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 cut between all the realms, between all the skies, between all of the people. And then it builds, builds, builds. He's about to hit the ground, a burst of fire, and a burst of fire as the curtain opens to reveal the Undying Lands and Galadriel bails. So we just get this burst of light and her diving into the water. So we get the man hitting the earth, ball of fire, her hitting the water, ball of fire, but a complete inverse. So he lands in flames. She leaves the flames and lands in water. Like just the, the, the differing there is just lovely. So the building, 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 and then that's the end of the episode. So I just loved that pacing. I loved the intercut where we saw the worlds, we saw how this impacted the entire world, and it then inferred it wasn't just the stranger impacting the entire world, Galadriel's choice was impacting the entire world. And it felt like a very personal choice. It felt like her but we could feel the wider impact because of that intercut, because of that parallel motion between the falling of the stranger. So absolutely love the portrayal of that. I also loved the positioning that shifted. So as we saw Galadriel at the front, and then she started to change her mind, and we could see that kind of idea forming in her mind, she physically took a few steps back. And that other elf, I'm blanking on his name, Thondir maybe, um, the one that was quite antagonistic to her throughout their, their time in the north, stepped into that front spot and tried to call out to her and his voice was all muffled and he'd reached a hand out and she turned away and, and, and said, nope, <laughs> not life for me. Um, so there was a really physical stepping out of that role. So that also opens up to what's next for her because she's not fulfilling that role. 
Um, so I find that really interesting. Um, I know there's a lot of speculation about her being in the water and can elves swim and how far was she planning to swim and things like that. I'm, I'm not going to engage with that, but I assume she learned how to swim at some point and she's very strong. Uh, and there's probably some land nearby because Numenor is not too far away. And, you know, who knows? Um, but I do like that they, they did show her quite exhausted at the beginning of episode two. It, it made it a little bit more real um, that she wasn't just swimming off into uh, oblivion. <laughs> there was there was some work put out there and, and some hope that she would find something. But yeah, I thought that scene was just really beautiful, beautifully shot, um, lovely visual storytelling about that choice. And then the, the dichotomy of, of the stranger falling to the earth and her making that decision being shot together and lined up was just a lovely finish for episode one. So there's my deep dive for episode one. Episode two, I would like to discuss Casa Du. I loved Casa Du. <laughs> I loved it. That was the only point in the two episodes that I got a little emotional. Um, and I got emotional twice. So those are the two bits I want to talk talk about. Um, one is the actual first time we saw Casa Doom, and the other is the conversation between Elrond and Durin. So let's start at the very beginning. Um, a very good place to start. It's when they're walking up to Caliburnbor and Elrond are walking up to the gates of Casa Doom, up to the, the doorway in the in the rock. And firstly, we just see this portal open. We just see this peephole open up. And I immediately was like, oh, because that peephole tells us so much. It could have just been a piece of rock over a hole, you know? It could have just been simple, move the thing aside and see who's out there. But they didn't do that. It was a gorgeously crafted piece of engineering that the, the rock slid together and fit together like, you know, the joins of a really well-made wooden chest. Uh, fit together perfectly and there was marks of gold and different shapes and just the way that it kind of slid into into place immediately tells me craftsmanship, engineering, artistry, excuse me, wealth. I mean it was just beautifully done. So in that one shot we get a lot of depth about the culture and sophistication of this culture. So we know that they're able to design things and execute things really well. That was beautifully done. Um, there's a, a strong idea in science fiction um, filmmaking that it, you get the same thing with a portal door. So if if somebody says the, the door dilated open or, or dilated closed, it, shut up, um, then you know that it's a science fiction world because our doors don't do that, right? They don't periscope and, and, and go like that. They open or they close. So having a door do that immediately shows you that we're in a science fiction world. So having this peephole do something different just immediately made me go, ooh, lovely, and, you know, and a nice little nod to some other things. Um, I also really liked the little buildup before that moment where Elrond's talking about the welcome that they're about to have because it really reminded me of Gimli's thoughts when they were um, approaching Moria in Peter Jackson's trilogy. I don't know if it was purposeful or not, but I kind of liked that it was reminiscent of him saying, oh, we're going to be welcomed with open arms and salted pork and all these things. It was just kind of the same conversation with the same reaction, you know, one death and one unwelcomeness, but it was still kind of a you shall not pass situation. And I really liked that. And it might not have been purposeful, but it was a nice um, familiar association. It didn't do it any harm. It was just a nice little nod. So then we step into Cause of Doom. And this this moment where the music starts, we hear the chanting of the dwarves and, and the, the movement into this dark cave, and then it just opens up. That land was just astounding. You know, in that one shot, we can see the practicalities that they considered in building this scene. We know that the dwarves have figured out how to harness the light to grow things inside, to farm, to harness the water, to build these roads that work with the mountain, not against it. And it wasn't just practical, it was beautiful. 
So it wasn't just, we have to live inside this mountain. It was, we get to live inside this mountain and celebrate it and live our lives and embrace these gorgeous things and work on our artistry. And I love that we got that in one shot. And the awe of Elrond as he looked around, like, I can't believe you did this in 20 years, was also really effective because they did this in 20 years. So we know that they are very powerful, very creative, um, very productive. Loved that. So then we cross, um, we have the challenge, and it was the next bit on the elevator, on the lift, that really got me. First of all, it made me think of an elevator pitch. If, if you haven't heard of that, an elevator pitch is where pretend you're in an elevator with Steven Spielberg and you have two minutes to pitch your movie because he's gonna get out of the elevator. This is your chance. And it's, it's a known thing in you know, the industry, like you have your elevator pitch and it doesn't have to just be in film, it can be in any field. But here they are stepping onto an elevator and we know that he's getting kicked out. So we basically have the tension of this one elevator ride for Elrond to change Durin's mind. What's he gonna say? So we already have this built-in tension. Like they could have filmed that in any other way, but they put it on an elevator. So there's already this like limitation that is putting some pressure onto, onto my understanding of the scene and how we feel about it. So I loved that. And then we have the world building again with the sophistication of that elevator. When the weights came down with the heads on it, counterweighting the, the lift going up and then the bird at the top, it was just stunning. I was like, oh, it's so pretty. Um, and again, that could have just been a really simple piece of rock, but it wasn't. They put the time and the artistry into that to develop it and to reflect the depth of culture and character um, within the dwarves of, of Cause of Doom, which I loved. So I love that we have that world building. What I was missing up to this point and what I was concerned about from the beginning was the world building alongside the character building because we have so much ground to cover in these two episodes. And in the first season, really, I mean, we're really laying the groundworks of where are we? There's six places I have to learn. Who are these people? I think they said they have something like 118 speaking cast members in, in the cast. That's a lot. So we have to learn 118 people. And we don't just have to learn those things, we have to care about them. We have to care about the world that is now at risk and we have to care about these characters that are now at risk and what they're engaging in. And I wasn't sure how they were gonna do that. So the world building was going well in my mind. I was like, yes, this is all beautiful. It's lining up really interestingly. But I was a little concerned about character building because I hadn't had a lot of that. And then we get this scene. As soon as Durin started talking to Elrond and you could feel the pain in his voice when he said, 20 years, 20 years might be a blink of an eye to you, but to me, I've lived a lifetime. I've gotten married, I've had kids and you missed all of that, you know? And you could feel it. Oh, it just hit so hard. I, I thought Owen Arthur did a brilliant job. And it was emotion and it was depth, but it was also showing us the difference of lifespans and timelines, right? We learned that to elves, 20 years is the blink of an eye and to dwarves, that's a whole lifetime. Not really, but it's a huge chunk of their life. So what could that mean in terms of political stresses, in terms of difficulties between the races? You know, you, you suddenly understand a little bit more of the differences between the dwarves and the elves and the men and the uh, Harfoots and everything and why that could be really problematic just because of the timeline. But we don't get it through a history lesson. We get it through a really personal interaction. So taking this really kind of difficult concept like elven timelines and the difficulties that can arise politically with that 
and using a relationship like Darren and Elrond and having that one little scene where you feel the emotion and the cut to the core of, of those people of you hurt me, you know, you betrayed my friendship. I trusted you. My heart is hurt. Oh, it just hit, it hit real hard for me. I loved it. Um, and I thought it was really well performed and, and Elrond, I think he, he, flowed really well between the ages. I think sometimes Robert Aramea looks quite timeless. So I, I thought that scene was quite um, good for showing that, that he looked worn and weary and apologetic and then, you know, kind of succumbed and said, I'm so sorry, my friend, I, I really did hurt you. My apologies, please let me try to make amends. You are my friend, you know. So I really loved that. Um, and then we get that lovely scene with his wife and his kids and the meal and the elven tree. And it, it was, just really earned you know it felt good <laughs> it felt nice to be in that space and to to feel that friendship and the humor of the dwarves was there but it wasn't gimmicky you know it, it wasn't used for a comic relief it was just part of who that character was and i thought that worked really well so whew, those are the two bits i wanted to dive into I do hope to be a bit more thematic in some of these moments to kind of give you a tool and talk about camera angles and we'll look at that. But I think we've got to do it through what is also really pressing story-wise. Um, so I'll, I'll take notes if you have questions or things that you want to comment on or ask on, please do um, in the comments, I welcome that. Um, but whatever you know strikes our fancy that week, we'll just have a chat about. But I hope that was helpful. I hope that gives you a little insight to just some of the adaptation choices. But I mean, that's scratching the surface, man. There's so much we could look at. There's so many things in there about like lighting and camera angles and character and, and whatnot that um, I think we'll we'll do a few uh, short videos as well. But hope that piqued your interest um, and you enjoyed that. Uh, and I look forward to the next one. So on to episode three and uh, back to Corey. Thanks very much. One of the things that I was delighted and fascinated by in the first two episodes of The Rings of Power was its relationship with the Silmarillion. Now, the Silmarillion, of course, is Tolkien's account of the ancient legends and mythology of Middle-earth, uh, the stuff that he was writing from his earliest days, the stuff that really fascinated him. Now, the show does not have the rights to the Silmarillion, which means they can't tell the Silmarillion stories as part of their stories, but the show is very aware of the Silmarillion, and they really point that out in several ways, sometimes in kind of Easter egg-like ways, and sometimes in the ways that they integrate concepts into the main storyline that they're talking about. One of the coolest examples of this, I thought, was the, the introductory sequence to episode two. Uh, this, uh, with the, in the opening credits, when the, uh, the, the titles are happening and we see these resonance patterns happening, right? You get this, this black sheet and then the vibrations of sound from beneath it forming these beautiful shapes, beautiful and intricate and artistic shapes, right? In the, uh, in the, the sort of the sand and pebbles that we see on the top. Um, this, I believe, is a, a clear reference to the Ainulindale from the Silmarillion. So the Ainulindale uh, means the music of the Ainur, and it's the creation story of the world. Tolkien's creation story involves music. It doesn't just involve music. It's based entirely on music. The Ainur, which is sort of the, the choir of the gods, the choir of these angelic beings, under the direction of a Luvatar god, um, they sing a great music 
and that music is what is going to shape and form the world. And this idea of the importance of music is a, a key theme uh, in all of Tolkien's works, the power of music to shape and form even the primary world. And so seeing, as they have uh, on this opening sequence, the way in which sounds are, the, the way that they've dramatized sounds forming shapes and things manages to evoke the Ainuindale without saying a single word about it, right? And I loved that idea. There's even that moment, right, when the, the black uh, sort of serpent shape begins to, to wind its way through this one asymmetrical thing amidst all of the beautiful symmetry, including, of course, the symmetry of two trees next to each other. Um, in the midst of all of this symmetry, we get this one dark asymmetrical movement amidst all the other symmetries and beauties that we see within the resonance patterns, right? And that evokes the discord of Melkor. Melkor, who's later called Morgoth, right? The big bad guy who introduces a discordance and rebels in the music, just trying to shout down the beautiful music, right? And we can see, again, that idea being evoked without words, right? With only these images, these images which themselves evoke sounds and music. I think this is just a gorgeous way of very subtly incorporating some of these ideas and really directing our attention towards these Silmarillion concepts. Another Silmarillion moment that I think they invoke really interestingly in episode one is the kinslaying. Now, the kinslaying is a really crucial incident in the Silmarillion. Now, in the show, you will recall that in Goadriel's prologue, she talks about how Melkor came and messed up Valinor, and they chose to stand against him, so they sailed over to Middle-earth and then fought the war, right? Those things are all True, that's what happened in the Silmarillion, but it skips over a lot. And because, of course, they have to. They can't tell that story because they don't have the rights to the Silmarillion. But one of the main things that they skipped over is the kinslaying. When the elves who left Valinor to come back to Middle-earth, who were the Noldor, when the Noldor left Valinor, they didn't have any ships. And so they go to their kinsmen, the Teleri, who do have ships, who live by the sea, and the ships are the main thing that they build. It's their primary art form uh, and craft. And the, uh, the Noldor, led by Feanor, ask to borrow the ships, and the Teleri say, no, they're not going to lend the ships to them. So Feanor and his kin take the ships by force, and when the Teleri try to resist, the Feanorians start killing them. And there is blood in the harbor. It is the first ever slaying of elf by elf, and it's a really, really big deal. As a consequence of the kin slaying, a doom, a curse is laid upon the Noldor that they shall be plagued by treachery and tragedy for the whole course of their time in Middle-earth. So yes, the war goes very badly, but partly that is due to the kinslaying, to the consequences of their own action. Now, again, all of this gets skimmed over. They can't, this is not part of the story that they're telling in this show. But once again, the show remembers these things and embeds some of these ideas into the way that they describe things. One way, of course, in which they do this is this remarkable, in my opinion, one of the most striking visual images that we get in the entire 
first two episodes, which is that shot of the red water and the dead elves floating in the water. Now, when that is placed in the episode is in the context of describing the end of the war and how destructive the war against Morgoth was. And of course, that's true, right? Um, but the, that image of dead elves floating in the water specifically inevitably invokes, for Silmarillion readers, the, the memory of the kinslaying. And even the way that they've placed that, placing the memory of the kinslaying at that time of, 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 of recalling the, the, the horrible suffering and destruction that is brought on the Noldor by the war, itself is a linking that seems to remember the doom of the Noldor the curse of the, of, of the North against the Noldor. It's, it's, it's a really big deal. But here's another even cooler thing, right, that I was just so excited about when I first saw it. The scene with child Galadriel at the beginning also recalls the kinslang. She makes a boat, and her boat is a swan boat, which is just the kind of boat that the Teleri made, the kind of boat that um, the Noldor, under the leadership of Feanor and his sons, stole from the Teleri to start the kinslaying. And we see, of course, other elf children around Galadriel throwing rocks at it and eventually destroying and sinking the ship which is just what the Feanorians did with the Teleri ships. Feanor not only steals the ships and kills the Teleri, but when he gets to Middle-earth, he sets fire to the ships and sinks them all, wantonly destroying the most beautiful vessels ever created by anybody, right? Um, the greatest work of art that the Teleri will ever achieve. And we can see that same kind of frustration in Galadriel as the work of her hands is being destroyed by these other kids. And here's the kicker. The kids that are throwing the rocks, at least two of them, have red hair, right? They're, they're red-haired kids. And that's significant because the sons of Feanor have red hair. They're some of the only red-haired elves in the Silmarillion. It's a really, really deep cut, right? But if you notice that the kids throwing the rocks and sinking the swan ships have red hair, again, it's a, it's a really deep Easter egg that recalls the kinslaying and once again frames from that scene at the beginning with juvenile Goadriel all the way to that horrible, horrible shot of all of the dead elves in the bloody water. Um, recalls how important the kinslaying is, even though they never actually tell the story. Okay, now having talked about several of the ways in which the, the episodes are really dealing with the Silmarillion and being aware of it in very interesting ways, let's talk about the biggest departure from the Silmarillion. The one thing in, the, in episode one which I think is the greatest divergence from what Tolkien wrote, and I find this really, really fascinating. And here I'm thinking of Finrod's oath, that oath of vengeance to hunt down Sauron that Galadriel says Finrod took, and which she then takes onto herself, right? And we see her relentlessly pursuing this hunt for Sauron, this quest for vengeance, um, both vengeance for her brother and uh, to fulfill his, uh, whatever motivated his vow exactly, to hunt down Sauron. Um, now this, as I say, is a very significant departure from the story. It's interesting especially, though, because Finrod in the Silmarillion does take an oath. And his oath does, in fact, lead to his death, 
at the hands of Sauron, right? When uh, the whole line in the episode about, but Sauron found him first, right? And that's how he died. Not wrong. That's actually what happened, right? But it doesn't go down. Anything like is implied by the very brief voiceover. Um, so, and, and what's more, the oath in particular that Finrod takes in the text is not only, it's, it's not just not the same, it's almost opposite to the one that he's described as taking in the show. Uh, in the show, again, it's this aggressive oath, right? I'm going to hunt down Sauron, uh, uh, you know, for, again, we're not exactly told precisely why uh, he, Finrod singles out Sauron in this way. In the text, the oath that Finrod takes is a self-sacrificial oath. He has sworn that he will aid the, uh, you know, Barahir, this, this, there's this human warrior who saves his life. And he swears that he will come to his aid anytime it's called for, him or any of his heirs. And his son, Baron, finds himself in great need. He is on the great quest of the Silmaril in the big story of Baron and Luthien, which is one of the great stories of the Silmarillion. And he asks for Finrod's help. Finrod knows that this quest is likely to lead to his death, almost certain actually to lead to his death, but he does it anyway, even knowing that. And so his his sticking to his oath leads him in the end to the dungeons of Sauron and to being tortured and then killed by, you know, by Sauron and Sauron's werewolves uh, there in the island. So th there are some similarities, but massive differences there. So what's happening there? Well, I have to say there are a couple reasons that I find myself distrustful of Goadriel's account here. I wonder, because this is, there were no other incidents like this, places where they just took something that is explicitly given in the text and just altered it like that, right? There are other place, things, you know, places where they've displaced something maybe from one part of the story to the other, um, or introduced new elements in order to convey a particular idea. They've told many things that aren't in the text because, of course, there's a lot of supplementation going on, but there are very few moments where they've taken something that is in the text and simply flatly contradicted it, as they've done with Finrod's Oath. So I wonder, here's another reason that I wonder, the outcome of that whole scene, Galadriel's taking that oath on herself, the outcome is a bad outcome, right? It's a bad outcome for Galadriel. She ends up taking this oath. Now, again, this is another Silmarillion sort of motif. When people take oaths, especially that kind of an oath taken in, in anger and grief, there's, it's a bit of a red flag, right? And I think we immediately see that red flag being played out in Galadriel. Um, she is not only acting in grief for her brother, she's not only acting in sort of righteous anger against Sauron and the desire to stop his evil and prevent anybody else from suffering. There is clearly self-loathing involved in Galadriel's mindset there. It's a it's, 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 I found it deeply moving, the, the sort of the psychological profile that we get of Goadriel and her trauma and her dealing with her trauma and dealing with her grief um, and the way that that spills over onto herself. I found it really striking in the ice cavern when she sees that place where the door is, right? Um, but what she's looking at is a reflection of herself. And then she punches herself in the face, right? As she goes through that in order to discover Sauron. The way that gets overlaid, I found, as I say, really, really moving. But it makes me suspicious, right? I don't think that her oath is leading her in a good place. 
as even Halbrand on the raft in episode two starts calling her on, right? That she has this idea of the righteousness of the oath, which I think is not, in fact, accurate, right? So I'm going to be very interested to see how this plays out. Now, especially since the other cue that we get is her dagger, right? The dagger, which was Finrod's dagger. So that dagger is the recurring symbol of her oath of vengeance, of her connection to her brother, right? Um, her reluctance to give up the dagger when she's supposed to be headed towards Valinor and her taking the dagger back, right? All of those things help to tie the dagger as the sort of the, the symbol of this oath. And of course, the dagger is an image of the two trees, the light of Valinor, and really, in my mind, throws into relief the way in which this is, this is a deep question about, is she following the true light or is she following the reflected light? I actually think the Oath of Finrod, as it's described in the, in the episode, is going to end up itself being one of those reflected lights that is leading her down into darkness, as we see in episode two, literally, it leading her, it dropping her down uh, below the sea instead of having her sailing on top of the sea. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be watching this very interesting, very, with, with much attention. Um, I think that it's very likely that we're going to be learning a little bit more context about Finrod and his oath as we move forward. Okay, now one of the scenes that I know a lot of Tolkien fans were really puzzled by in episode one was the scene of Galadriel jumping out of the boat to Valinor. A lot of people are like, what is going on here? Galadriel jumping out of a boat? Like what? What's happening here? I was really excited by this scene, actually, because in it, I feel like I can see the show engaging with some really, really interesting ideas, not just about, you know, Tolkien or the Silmarillion in general, but about Galadriel's character herself. There's a big question that looms over uh, Galadriel's character. And one, the, the question is, first, why does she stay in Middle-earth, right? Why doesn't she go back? at the end of the first stage? Why, why does she choose to remain? But that question becomes even more focused. So we get one answer to that, by the way, which is very strongly played up by the show. In Unfinished Tales, Tolkien says that she, Galadriel deemed it her duty to remain in Middle-earth while Sauron was still unconquered. So that idea, which of course, uh, you know, Galadriel in the show very strongly emphasizes um, is definitely there in the text, but there's more. The more that's there is the question of the ban of Galadriel. There is this sense that Galadriel is not welcome back in Valinor. It's not just that she chose to stay. It's that she cannot return. She's not allowed. And this emerges in a few of the things that Galadriel says. This, by the way, is a wonderful little glimpse into how Tolkien operated as a writer. This happened to him a lot, where he'd be writing a scene and a character says something and he doesn't know what the character's referring to. So then he sits back and he listens to what the character says and he's like, yeah, I wonder what that means. I'll have to figure that out. Right? So instead of changing it right, or cutting it, instead he tries to figure out what the story behind that thing is. One of these things that happened this way in The Fellowship of the Ring is when Galadriel says, I passed the test. When she refuses the ring, when Frodo offers it to her, she says, I passed the test. I shall diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. There's this implied link between the, that now she can go into the West, where she couldn't 
before. And that then gets picked up again in her song when she sings her um, I Sang of Leaves of Leaves of Gold song. At the very end of that song, she says, what ship will bear me ever back across so wide a sea? She doesn't think she can return and go back. And we can hear another echo of this in the Quenya song, Namarie, that she sings later on, when at the end she says, maybe thou shalt find Valinor, maybe even thou shalt find it. And again, there's that sense she doesn't know that she is ever going to be able to go back, right? And so Tolkien thought about this. There are several ideas that he had about what this stuff might mean, but one of the ideas that he entertained when he was trying to figure out the story behind these things that Galadriel was saying was that she was actually under a ban, that she was forbidden to come back. But why? Why exactly? The only answer Tolkien ever gave, he never really wrote this story fully. He never really worked this out. The only idea that was there was a fairly vague and kind of starter idea, which is simply that she had pride issues. She was ambitious. She wanted to rule a realm and seek power for herself. And until she worked through her pride and anger, her, not anger, her pride and, and arrogance issues, her ambition issues, then, you know, only then would she be allowed to come back to Valinor. But that's not that's only the very beginning of a story. It's not a real story, right? And surely there were other elves who also had pride issues as well and maybe needed to work those through, but we don't hear about them being banned like Goadriel was banned, right? So the, in, in episode one, what I see happening in the boat scene when Goadriel jumps off, the whole orchestration of that entire situation, they bring this issue to a crisis. Right? They shine this enormous spotlight in episode one on the question of Galadriel returning. And they provide an answer to the question, why? not only why does she not go, but also why is she... Why is there an issue with Galadriel, right? Why would she be, why would she perhaps not be welcomed? And their answer is because she turned away from it. They link it to her choice, which they root in all of these uh, psychological issues that we see with Galadriel, which are, as I said, I find really compelling and really interesting, right? Um, so the, the show's answer to this question and the way in which this gets dramatized in that scene when Galadriel turns away from the light, backs away, picks up the dagger and jumps into the sea and ends up floating there in darkness, right? These, I find, very, very compelling answers to the question um, that I can, that Tolkien is asking. So although, you know, no sequence like this happens, of course, anywhere in Tolkien's writings throughout, we can see them engaging with and providing some really interesting answers to questions that Tolkien himself was asking. Now, a question that lots of people are asking is what is going on with Valinor and the return to Valinor? So many questions, right? Now, one of the big questions, and this is still, by the way, one of the big questions that I have, one of the things that I feel I don't yet really understand, don't understand what exactly, how exactly it works within the world of the show, and nor do I understand exactly how that's connected back to Tolkien's world. It's complicated. Let me try to break this down a little bit. So the big question that I have is, in episode one and two, is the world round or is it flat? Now, let me explain why that matters. Um, so in Tolkien's mythology of Middle-earth, 
the world begins flat. Middle-earth is flat to begin with. And this is important because Valinor, the undying lands, the home of the Valar and Elven home and everything like that, is, is, is off on the west. There's, there's, you know, it's, it's in the west, there's an ocean, and then you've got Middle-earth on the other side. It's possible to sail across the ocean back and forth between Valinor and Middle-earth. Now, it's not easy because the Valar have hidden Valinor, and there are uh, the, 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 the magic isles and the shadowy isles um, that prevent people just casually boating back towards Valinor. But still, from a, like a, you know, a world standpoint, it's possible to do that, right? But there is a significant moment in Tolkien's story when the flat world is made round, where God intervenes and just changes the entire world and makes it into a sphere. Now, the big significance of Iluvatar making the world round is that Valinor is removed from the circles of the world. So it is no longer just a continent on the other side of the ocean. It becomes this place, this isn't Tolkien's vocabulary, but we would say like it's in another dimension, basically. And the only way you can get to it from Middle-earth is essentially through a portal, through a, this, this magic path called the straight road or the lost road, which enables you to get, you know, the, the curtain opens, right? And you're able to get back. That's what we see happening at the end of the Return of the King. When Frodo sails from the Grey Havens and we're told the gray rain curtain rolled back and he beheld white shores and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise. This is not just a long sea voyage which, which ends up with them fetching up in the harbor at Valinor, right? They pass through the, the gray rain curtain which splits before them and they pass through the magic portal and get to Valinor. That's the situation when the earth is round. And that, of course, is very much the situation, visually speaking, that we seem to be being given in episode one, right? The, the, the look of things, it explicitly invokes that passage that I just read from The Return of the King. Notice we get the gray rain curtain. Did you notice that it started raining on Goadriel and the other elves as they approached the gap, right? As they started to go in, because that's not just a cloud curtain, it's a rain curtain, exactly as Tolkien describes. And if you look when the, when the gap opens, right? When the curtains open, you can just see the white shores and something beyond it. You can't quite yet see the far green country under a swift sunrise, right? But you can just start to make something out, right? So it seems very clear that this scene visually in episode one is evoking that situation at the end of, uh, at, at the, that we get at the end of The Return of the King. By the way, this of course is the same passage that Peter Jackson put into the mouth of Gandalf talking to Pippin in Minas Tirith, which is a very moving and powerful scene. Gandalf there is talking to Pippin and saying that that's what would hap will happen to mortals when they die, which is not what Tolkien is describing at all. What's happening here is very, very much closer. It's a description of the pathway to the West, of the pathway, you know, that, that, that magic pathway opening to enable you to get there from our world. Now, um, okay, so what exactly is going on here? Is the world flat around at the beginning of the show in the prologue when Galadriel just mentions the elves coming to Middle-earth? It sounds like the world is flat, like they just sailed from one continent to the other is what, I mean, 
that prologue is skimming over a lot of things, as I've already mentioned, right? Uh, because all of those stories they are not telling that are not part of their story to tell in this series. Um, but, but it makes it sound like they just travel from one side to the other. But going back, we definitely get that more sort of round world moment. So what's, what's going on here? As I say, I don't fully understand this yet. I'm going to be looking for some more information, uh, from more ways to understand it. It's possible that they're evoking the green, the, the gray rain curtain, uh, and the magic portal just to emphasize. I mean, clearly the emphasis in that episode is you have to be welcomed in by the Valar, right? This isn't just something that happens automatically. You don't just get into a really good boat that can make it across the ocean and you get to Valinor, right? It's this special, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's an actual rite, right? Like an R-I-T-E, a religious rite that they're undergoing, right? And then they are, the, the doors are open for them and they are welcomed. Um, it's not just a voyage on their part. And that seems to be an important element. And that element is an element that could be at home, either in a flat world or a round world. Anyway, I don't know how this is going to be resolved. I don't know if it will be explicitly resolved, but I do think that it's important because remember I mentioned there is a crucial moment in the story of Tolkien's world, in the story of Middle-earth, where the world is made round within Tolkien's mythology. And that point comes at a climactic moment in the Second Age. It's going to play a significant, that moment will play a huge part in this series, not in season one, um, but later on in this series. So it's going to come to a point sooner or later where we're going to have to figure out, I think, whether the earth is round or flat. So we'll see how that goes. Now, there are two other issues that I would mention in connection with this idea. One is one of the things that kind of confused and disturbed people, I think even more than the whole question of exactly what's going on with getting back into Valinor, was the question less of how they get back than why and under what circumstances they get back. And in particular, this issue of Gilgoad the High King exerting authority over who gets to go and who gets to stay in Middle-earth. The main thing I would say about that, I too am very uncomfortable with that. Very uncomfortable with the idea that Gilgalad is just, is, is asserting that kind of authority over this question. It doesn't, based on everything that we see, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that Gilgalad should be exerting authority over. But I wonder if we are in fact going to be seeing that it is, that's exactly right, that it shouldn't be. That is, in other words, is this going to be a, 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 an area of growth for Gilgalad himself, right? I think there are lots of reasons that we have within that first episode to be a little uneasy about how Gilgalad is asserting his authority, not only in this one issue, but in others as well. And we already see, for instance, Arondir defying Gilgalad's authority by not leaving uh, uh, Tirharad and in fact going on to investigate alone. And my suspicion is that his rebellion against his captain and through his captain, the authority of the High King is going to end up being an important and fruitful thing. So again, I think we have reasons to believe that Gilgalad's authority and his whole relationship uh, to his people and their going into the West is likely going to be something that's going to be changing over the course of this season. But we have to wait to find out. The other thing that I think really um, influences and helps us to maybe deal with, I think perhaps will give us more information about this whole flat world, round world, where is Valinor question, is the meteor 
right? Well, meteorite. Well, whatever it is that uh, the stranger arrives in, right, that crashes into the ground. Um, where is that coming from? Let's assume for a moment that it came from Valinor, which I think most likely. Um, if it came from Valinor, is the world flat? If the world is flat, then that would have just been a, a sort of ballistic projectile lobbed across the ocean, right, which lands over there by the Harfoots. If Valinor is in fact taken out into another dimension, the idea of a star falling from space, a starfall, remember, is what Sadak calls it, um, that begins to map a little bit more clearly onto a round world situation. Final note about the round world versus flat world thing. This is one of many things that Tolkien himself was rethinking and reworking over the course of his career. A lot of people are really invested, a lot of Tolkien readers who love the Silmarillion are really invested in the flat world mythology at the beginning. I personally, I personally strongly like the flat world mythology that Tolkien gives and the idea of the world being made round I think is really, really cool. I love that too. However, we have to acknowledge Tolkien himself changed his idea about that. In the years after The Lord of the Rings, he decided he was going to reconceive the entire thing and make the world round from the very beginning. So, if the show has decided, and I don't think it's obvious yet one way or the other, but if they have decided that the world is round from the very beginning, they have, you know, Tolkien's authority for that idea as well. Now, that would also introduce some other questions for later on in the story, which I don't know how they would respond to. So one way or the other, it's going to be really interesting to track. The last thing I want to talk about here today is a theme that I have to admit I never thought that they would touch. And it's what I call the changing of the world. In Tolkien's world, there's a very clear way th history proceeds. That is, everything gets lesser over time. Back in the, the older, the farther back in history you go, the greater things are, the bigger things are, the more powerful and strong the creatures, especially the elves, were. And over time, things diminish. Almost everything diminishes over time, whether that's individual people getting sort of weaker as time goes on, or whether even that sort of the, the story be getting sort of smaller and smaller in dimensions uh, as time goes forward. We can see parallel stories being told again and again, and every time it's told again, it's on sort of a smaller scale, in a sense. Um, this is a very clear trend in Tolkien's writings, but here's what this means. The further back you go, the bigger and the greater everything is. And I was really wondering, are they going to try to deal with that? Are they going to try to show us that? To show us that creatures back in the Second Age, elves especially, the heroes of old, are actually greater than the ones that we're familiar with in the Third Age. Because in Tolkien's world, that would very much be the case. And I think, for instance, of what we see, one of the things, one of the choices that they made very persistently in the Peter Jackson movies was to kind of take the great high heroic characters and kind of bring them down to our level so that we could relate to them more easily. This famously is why Faramir in the movies is not nearly as impressive as Faramir in the book, for instance. But the same thing with 
reluctant Aragorn, and uh, even Gandalf has more moments of weakness and all that kind of thing. There seemed to be, as I say, a, a deliberate choice on their part to try to take those great heroic figures, keep them heroic, but make them more um, easy for us to relate to, um, more on our level, in a sense. That's something we can see in the Jackson films. So my question was, are they going to do the same thing? Are we going to see in the Rings of Power show any hint that the elves in, back in the Second Age were not only greater than we are, but greater than the elves and heroes of the Third Age are? And we have. And I find that really, really interesting. I was, as I said, very surprised to see that they really took this up, but they did. One of the things that Tolkien tells us about the elves of the Elder Days is that they could endure hardships that would easily kill human beings. And we see that. We see that from the very beginning of Galadriel's story in her little... Um, Arctic expedition, right? When she is, and she comes back reporting frostbite, but she seems to be fine, right? She endured it and she got better. They are enduring conditions that would easily kill humans, especially as ilk. I mean, what, what, would they have a, a cloak and armor? Right? You know how cold that armor would have gotten in sub-zero temperatures uh, up there in the north? And yet, they made it. They survived, right? And even the elves who get tossed around and slammed into walls by the troll in the fight seem to be fine afterwards, right? But this is not just one of those, you know, action heroes never actually, you know, get incapacitated kind of tropes, right? Which we, we, we as we sometimes see in action movies. Um, it's not just that, right? Arondir explicitly draws attention to the fact, as I discussed in the earlier segment, that they, their kind, right? Elves, their bodies recover spontaneously from almost any injury. And that's exactly what Tolkien described of being particularly true of the elves back in the elder days. Um, so I think there's some really interesting ways in which we can see this, the toughness of the elves, the greatness of the dwarves, as I fully expect to see, right? And even of the human heroes, as we will see in Numenor. Um, and I'm fascinated that they actually seem to be raising the stature of these people way back where. Now, there's finally one other um, implication of this. There's one other consequence of this. The orcs are greater too. It was very noticeable when the orc comes through the floor and there's the fight. It seems like a big old boss, one orc, right? And it seems like a big old boss fight, right? Uh, in that kitchen. That orc is really strong and he's really tough and really hard to kill. And that too seemed very true. If as it looks from the show that they're going with the story. Tolkien wrote, had trouble with the question of the origin of orcs. Um, this is really one of the great unresolved issues in Tolkien's world building, um, which he never really resolved. In the published Silmarillion, it says that orcs were derived from elves, but that's only one idea that Tolkien had. Christopher had to pick one to put in the text, and that's the one he picked right? Um, but anyway, it seems to be the one that they're using, as far as we can see, I guess from the pointed ears and from other indications of their physiology, it looks like orcs are derived from elves um, within the show. But of course, it stands to reason. If orcs are derived from elves, and if the elves of the elder days are greater, stronger, and tougher than the elves of the later days, the orcs of the earlier days will also likely be greater, stronger, and quicker than the orcs of the later days. And I think that we can see that playing out. So I am 
really impressed that they're actually trying to deal with this kind of theme. And I can't wait to see what this comes to later on in the show. Thanks for joining us for Rings and Realms. Man, there is so much more to talk about. I didn't even get to talk about The Stranger and who I think The Stranger is. A blue wizard, by the way, still absolutely in the wizard camp. Do not think The Stranger is Sauron, but so much more, to, so much to talk about there. Um, and the Harfoots and their narrative role in the story and the parallels between them and characters in Tolkien. And then also some really interesting details about Sauron and tidbit, tidbits that were dropped about Sauron in these first two episodes. A lot more to talk about. So I want to invite you to join me and Maggie for our other show, Other Minds and Hands. This is a live show that we run on Thursday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find it on the YouTube channel or the Twitch channel of Signum University. So if you have questions, there are more things that you want to talk about, uh, burning questions that we didn't get to or didn't answer here today, join us on Thursday afternoon and we can talk some of these things through more. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.